If you're not already a subscriber to the London Review of Books, now is the perfect time to try. Sign up for just £5 a month and treat yourself to some of the world's best writing from Europe's leading magazine of culture and ideas. Subscribe now while you're listening to this podcast at lrb.me forward slash now. That's lrb.me forward slash now. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. To remind you of the circumstances of this particular book, this is the first edition of A Sentimental Journey Through France and Italy, which contains the advertisement, which was put in by Stern, which says, the author begs leave to acknowledge to his subscribers that they have a further claim upon him for two volumes, more than these delivered to them now, and which nothing but ill health could have prevented him from having ready all along with these. The work will be completed, and delivered to the subscribers early the next winter. Well, as you know, that never took place. A month later, Stern was buried in St. George's Hanover Square churchyard. I'll start off. Um, thank you very much, Patrick. That was Patrick Wildgust of um, the Lawrence Stern Trust. Uh, go and stay with him in Shandy Hall, but don't go in weather like this, I beseech <laughs> you. Um, and uh, I, I got to know uh, Patrick on the back of my graphic novel version of Tristram Shandy, which was a joy to produce. It took me two and a half years to draw that. And I had uh, Lawrence Stern wafting his shade around my drawing board the whole time. And he was a joy to be with. He was a pleasure. But I've had this terror lurking in my heart ever since I produced that book and ever since I got to know Patrick that one day he would say, let's do a sentimental <laughs> journey. Because then I'd have to admit that I'd never read it, <laughs> which I hadn't until last year. Uh, but now I have several times. You'll be happy to hear. Uh, and I just, because my collaborator on this book is unable to be here as he's been dead for 250 years, I just wanted to read this bit because it sums up how I feel about travelling. So it fares with the poor traveller sailing and posting through the politer kingdoms of the globe in pursuit of knowledge and improvements. Knowledge and improvements are to be got by sailing and posting for that purpose. But whether useful knowledge and real improvements is all a lottery. And even where the adventurer is successful, the acquired stock must be used with caution and sobriety to turn to any profit. But as the chances run prodigiously the other way, both as to the acquisition and application, I am of opinion that a man would act as wisely if he could prevail upon himself to live contented without foreign knowledge or foreign improvements, especially if he lives in a country that has no absolute want of either. And indeed, much grief of heart has it often many a time cost me when I have observed how many a foul step the inquisitive traveller has measured to see sights and look into discoveries, all which, as Sancho Panza said to Don Quixote, they might have seen dry shod at home. <laughs> it is an age so full of light that there is scarce a country or corner of Europe where beams are not crossed and interchanged with others. Knowledge in most of its branches and in most affairs is like music in an Italian street whereof one uh, those may partake who pay nothing. 
but there is no nation under heaven, and God is my record, before whose tribunal I must one day come and give an account of this work, that I do not speak it vauntingly, but there is no nation under heaven abounding with more variety of learning, where the sciences may be more fitly wooed or more surely won than here where art is encouraged and will so soon rise high, where nature, take her altogether, has so little to answer for, and to close all, where there is more wit and variety of character to fiend the mind with. Where then, my dear countrymen, are you going? Oh, we are only looking at this chaise, said they. Uh, your most obedient servant, said I, skipping out of it and pulling off my hat. Uh, we were wondering, said one of them, uh, who I found was an inquisitive traveller, uh, what could occasion its motion? "'Twas the agitation," said I coolly, "'of writing a preface.'" <laughs> I think, I, I, that is just so wonderfully Sternian. Um, and also, it sums up how I feel about modern travel, uh, which uh, we're going to move on from very, very quickly. But I, you know, actually, going on an aeroplane anywhere on this planet at the moment is the most loathsome thing you can personally do to yourself, <laughs> apart possibly from mainlining heroin through your eye. But that gives you some pleasure at the end of it. And it's, I mean, it's just foul beyond belief. But you are a prodigious peregrinator. <laughs> Did I say? I mean... Or do you travel uh, with a purpose? Well, what kind of traveller are you? Because he lists the kind of travellers yeah, there are. What yeah, kind of traveller are you? A conflicted one. Um, I actually have to just say something about these glasses first, because you're, you're talking about injecting yeah. heroin into yeah. the eye. Yeah. I've been doing quite a lot of that, so the, the, eye, <laughs> the eye looks pretty weird, and I didn't want to inflict it on you. One of my ways of travelling, my, my earliest way of travelling, was really books. Two ways. One, um, navigating through the geography of what's going on on the page, which Stern is wonderful for, as you've shown in your two versions. And um, secondly, in projecting serious travel onto somewhere probably no further than the A13. So that uh, when I'm contemplating uh, my great-grandfather's journey up to the sources of the Amazon, I actually convert it to um, Becton Alp and um, <laughs> other places. And in that sense, you don't need to travel anywhere. But um, also, the second point was that traveling in the geography of these books, I'm being really digressive and stern, Good. you notice here, is, is that... If you, answer this I, if you answer this question, I'll be very disappointed. Yeah, yeah uh, uh, no chance of that. Um, coming to, to Sentimental Journey and coming back to Stern after a few years, actually threw me into the, into the universe. So that, so that crossing uh, Kingsland Road, a car swung out, obviously driven by a hitman, and tried to get me. So that my leg is now like Uncle Toby. And it, it's pretty well been shot off at the knee. I was sort of limping and dragging here with this heroin shot eye. <laughs> and I thought, if I read much more of this, I'm going to be crawling on hands and knees. And in, anyway, in... In Stern, you kind of remake battlefields on bowling greens, don't you, and all of that. And I thought this book that, that you've done, you, you've, I mean, one of the beautiful things is that you, you always invoke the past in such a kind of honorable way that, that it's like um, Thomas Patch's um, caricature of Stern meeting death, which I think is in yeah, that's... Jesus College in Cambridge. 
and Yorick seems to your Yorick seems to be my, quite my, my, my Yorick was specifically quite close to him. specifically the horns taken from that. Yeah, and this um, brilliant idea with the, the the devil and the angel on the shoulders. It, well, that was um, I mean in re reading the book and then rereading it uh, and realizing that actually um, as a journey it doesn't really get very far, uh, but it's constantly he's trying to work out where to go. Of course, he's peregrinating, but he can't decide where to go. And I suddenly realized, well, he's, he's, he's conflicted. Um, he's all the time conflicted. And so he, you use a standard cartooning device of having a devil and an angel. And they just lend themselves rather nicely to it, these, these two. And things. also, you, you, you have a great affinity for noses. I mean, obviously, yeah. obviously yeah. as a kind of way of dealing with phalluses. But, but uh, the fact that Tristram doesn't have a nose. Tristram and, doesn't have a nose. So Tristram is a letter. It's a hat. Actually, on, on, as we were walking here this evening through the icy streets, uh, my wife and I were, were talking about um, the organs of the 18th century, because I was particularly talking about uh, how S Swift, in his bibliography, his joke bibliography at the beginning of Tale of the Tub, refers to a general history of ears. Um, because Punishment for seditious libel mm. back in the day was having your ears chopped off, so it was a, it was a gag. And um, when I uh, did my graphic novel version of Gulliver's Travels, I put it in my own bibliography as a joke. And I got a letter from a ear, nose, and throat surgeon <laughs> who worked at the Royal National Throat, Nose, and Ear Hospital in Gray's Inn Road. My father used to be a scientist in the Institute of Laryngology over the road, over Gray's Inn Road from mm. there. And uh, he bought the book, and he, he knew my father very slightly, and thought it was very interesting that I should have actually got into otology in a big way and written this general history of ears. Mm. And he was wondering where he get hold of the copy. <laughs> <laughs> so I had to tell you him. Better write it. Yeah, now. I better better write it. Um, and I had to disabuse him of that. But so you've got ears with Swift, you've got noses with Stern, famously yes. Tristram's yeah. nose. And where no. where is where is the throat in the 18th century? <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's kind of hidden. It's hidden, yeah, that's right. It's wrapped up. It's wrapped and up. And there's quite a lot about hair, which for, for, for both of us is perhaps is, tricky is, territory. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and the nature of wigs and all, all of those things. Um, but one of the things that, that struck me, you know, just, just right from the, from the off, from, from the very first sentence, it seems to be, I mean, I hate saying this is, this is sort of the, any kind of contemporary parallel. But they order things I said this matter better in France. So the, so the idea of uh, you start off looking across the channel, yep. but you're, you're thinking things work better over there. And very soon we're into this uh, very interesting culture of mendicants and beggars and how you feel bad if you do give and how you feel bad if you don't give and can you exchange snuff boxes and all of, all of those things are very much... I mean, things that he's, we, he's we have to deal with in yeah. negotiating yeah. London now. Yeah. And, and the closeness <laughs> of London to the, to the London of the, the caricaturists that you admire um, seems to be perhaps narrower than ever. 400 yards that way is Gin Lane. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. it's actually Gin well, Lane, because yeah. you can triangulate from St. George's. St. George's Bloomsbury yeah. appears, yeah. and yeah. Yeah, the Hawksmoor Church, and... Yeah. Uh, so we are in the heart. We are in the heart of the beast. Uh, yeah. And it's. Uh, I mean, somebody once asked me. He said, "Would you like to live in the 18th century? Because you seem to be very influenced by it." But they had no flush toilets. That's <laughs> what you should bear in mind. And every night, the 
night soil man would go around with his cart collecting the night soil. It's not much of a euphemism. Uh, and they'd be dumped in enormous piles of shit in Islington. <laughs> you fill in the punchline yourselves, you already have that. <laughs> how, do, how does he stay so genial? I mean, he, he seems well, like a very, yeah. very pleasant kind of... Um, I, I was saying to you beforehand that, that, that there's this, this the devil and the angel that he's he's kind of um, interestingly lustful all the time. But, yeah. but it's it's kind of it's down again to it it's, it, it's, it's, yeah, at, it's yeah. at a distance, but it's it's the kind of thing that pushes the book on, and and it do, it doesn't really begin and it doesn't really end, and yet it's his last book. And um, I don't know whether there's a really a nice sense that. Because he's, he's not a healthy guy, is he? He's no, he's dying. He's dying. And yet, um, here he goes. He's, he's see, he sees all this kind of richness and the sensual pleasure of life. And he's, he's fascinated by the people he meets. He's not, he's just not interested in the topography. He doesn't, he doesn't no. give you any of that stuff at all. It's all just these characters and the, the comedic incidents and the absurdities that he stretches out. And one shallow reading of this would be just that he's a dirty old lech. He's a kind of enlightenment but, Harvey yes, Weinstein. But, but, sure <laughs> um, but he obviously isn't. He's, he's, he's charming and he's... And there's something about him which uh, he shares with my other two great heroes from the 18th century, uh, Swift and Hogarth, that they were horrified by the quotidian of their times, mm. as it were. So... If you had your gin down there in Gin Lane, you could walk around the corner and you'd see a 10-year-old child being hanged for stealing a bun. Uh, and people would think nothing of that, whereas Hogarth and Swift were horrified by that, and they responded by producing stuff which is called Swiftian because it's so vile, and Hogarthian because it's so earthy and vicious. But it has, down those Hogarthian streets walked a man called Hogarth who was not himself Hogarthian, as it were. Um, and, but Swift sort of goes on beyond that. Uh, sorry, Stern goes beyond that, I think, because... The tenderness of his heart is actually speaks to us across two and a half centuries. That just reading this stuff, and you think, well, actually, yeah. If I'd been a rather hard-hearted, smart-ass to a mendicant friar, I'd probably feel rather bad. Um, and I mean, he, the friar is, is brought back. He doesn't. Yeah. He doesn't just dump him as a character. Yeah, he no, hangs around. He brings he's him there, back, and, and then and then and then he sort of next time he's in Calais, he hears that the friar is dead. He goes and sits on his grave, and he cries like a woman. Yeah, he says it. Uh, and um, and he's also you know he's a snowflake to use the hideous fascist terms of the times of these times. Uh, he's very um, loving and intrigued towards his servants and the servants in general. They're they're totally rounded and equal yeah. characters, and the absurdity of how the people look from the servant's point of view is brought in all the time so he's well aware yeah. of that and and cries over a dead donkey as well yes and it's all the kind of thing i sort of get a bit tearful about thinking about sad dead donkeys so in terms of thinking <laughs> of you as as a as a traveler if you you know you don't you don't want to go on airplanes you don't want to get involved with that is the traveling you do to some extent time travel going back into the into the Richer world of the, uh, the, the caricaturist, um, yeah. the savage, such as against having to deal with the incredible boredom of political life as it is now. Uh, well, that's certainly you know, true. You're dealing with these dummies. What what do you do? I mean, they're all you know, af After a while, you can have so many dead fish in a barrel. To be honest, <laughs> so, oh God, I've got to draw. Well, I, I, I have to say, I do um, get a great deal of pleasure 
my drawing Theresa May as an ever thinner ghost, more and more ethereal. Um, so that's that's quite a joy. And it, Michael Gove, you, know, you just have to thank the gods of satire every day for his face. But, <laughs> but apart from that, um, you know, uh, who could make this up? Yeah. Well, <laughs> who could make this up? But let's not deal with that. Let's not talk about that. Let's talk about um, the kind. I mean, you said that. Stern in travelling. He's interested in people. He's not interested in seeing things. Yeah. So he, he might go to Brussels because this rather nice young woman whose fingers he's well, touching. Well, those, those, those seem to be his motives. That's what moves yeah. him. Yeah. I mean, he, I don't he doesn't know. want to. Go, he doesn't sort of demand to see yeah. something in Avignon. He, yeah. does, he doesn't no. want to see. Patrick, um, do we know why he was going to Rome? What was he planning to no. do when he got there? No idea. No. So, so so he's just well. just he just keeps moving. Just keeps moving to the. It's not like um, one of my one of my great heroes in life is the American poet Ed Dorn, who um, did determine, you know, quite late on. He'd never been there. He he wanted to get to Rome because he was uh, pursuing the kind of absurdities and criminalities of American political life and what was going on with uh, in the Middle East with an interest in Cathars and heresies. Mm. And he demanded to get to Rome, and he kind of, he knew he was dying by this time, but he still took himself to Rome and with a very sharp eye, kind of spun round with all his um, Protestant bias towards the eccentricities of Catholicism and, and, and rift. And, and going to Rome was really important. And it was a journey for somebody who wasn't a traveler in that sense that Werner Herzog says, uh, Walking is holy, and, and uh, um, tourism is a crime. You know <laughs> that, that version of the world, yeah. <laughs> which I think you know you could do a Herzog uh, book sometime. A Herzog, well, a Herzog comic. Well, uh, I mean, I suppose he's yeah, done, yeah, yeah. He's um, done it. Yeah, you, you can't, you can't really. Yeah, many years ago, went, went to that. see Herzog um, at the Royal Festival Hall, and they showed uh, his <coughs> film of, of Menhirs in Brittany. Showed a bit of that, and then they. We all watched that and were a bit puzzled. And the interviewer said to him, Well, Werner? And he just looked into the body of the horn and said, Tonight I am the only fully sane person in the whole of southern England. <laughs> yes! And we just strapped ourselves in and thought, Yes! Um, yeah, I don't, I don't think he's, I don't think Herzog is the kind of person who goes places to see things. I mean, <laughs> Um, I don't know. I mean, yeah. it's 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 this, it's this traveling thing because, in fact, next week we're going to Beirut. We're going to Beirut because somebody's paying me to go there because I judged a, an Arabic cartoon competition last year and they're adding up the gongs this, this next week. And um, it was great being in Beirut. I had a wonderful mm. time in Beirut. It was it was nice to be there. It was um, particularly because it was that week last September where that sort of mad young man let off a firework in a bucket on the district line, and it was uh, you know. Yeah, yeah, all over again. Yeah. So I was able to tweet, tweeting from the safety of my hotel in West Beirut, <laughs> um, which gave me a sort of free sort of pleasure. But um, had I not been asked to go to Beirut, I just wondered, would, would, would I go there? I mean, we, we, mm. we, we've been around a bit, haven't we? We, we, we go to places, but... Um, Do you only go to places where you're getting prizes? No, 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 <laughs> we go to other places. We, um, we went to um, Marienbad last year. That was, that was, that was a good weird. line. Yeah, that was weird. It was make the last a good, year we make were a good film. Make a good film, wasn't it? And it was 
it was it was strange. We had some mm. treatments for things we didn't work probably. Did so you play the matchstick game? No, we didn't. No, 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 no we didn't. No. But I'm not sure why we went there. But <laughs> talking of uh, Herzog and stone circles and things, it reminds me of um, many many years ago. You know, in the days when such things were possible, and you could do your cartoons about obscure writers, you you produced this uh, wonderful one set on Balls Pond Road, where there were two characters in a car. <laughs> Yeah, marooned and they're, they're angry, having an angry confrontation and they're, they're saying, um, I told you not to turn left by the burial pit of Bladard or uh, uh, the buried head of Bran and Tower. <laughs> and the other one says, oh, Ian Sinclair's age is a total waste of money. Yeah. <laughs> my family fell about crackling as if this had some truth to it. <laughs> And I was lucky enough to, to acquire this, this drug. You, you, you were very lucky to acquire that. because They fact, still laugh about so. Because <laughs> um, originally I sold it to Kevin Jackson. Oh, right. It was very I, nice of him to, yeah, and he to gave it up. He gave cede, it up. cede it to my passion to yeah. have it because it was so true. I think it was but, I mean, that, turned, that, turned, turned, turned up by the Temple you, of Mithras. You, yes, that's the one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and this is actually unbelievably true because I was always like being stopped on the street by people asking the way to uh, De Beauvoir Town. And I'd be saying, well, <laughs> you could just go down here where uh, the, the Jack the Hat weapon went into the canal and then you turn left here. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, this, is, this is the way, it, uh, I mean, I, I would read a city in terms of narrative stories, myths, the richer accumulations of things rather than standing staring at a kind of phone that gives you nothing. And yeah, general, but general. also, but also, when you when you've wandered around, you know, if, if you if you're not picking up a woman in a glove shop, mm. which is what Stern would do, you would presumably be in Paris looking at your uh, phone to tell you how to get to the Eiffel Tower. You then take a picture of yourself with the Eiffel Tower he's, because he's you have up. no memory, you see, and then you go back to a hotel which would look exactly like every other hotel on earth. Uh, I was well, in one. I was in one the other night uh, for some um, index or censorship event, and um, I was talking to. Uh, some venerable old journalist, and he said, this looks exactly like every other hotel on earth. Mm. Where are we? And mm. I said, we are literally nowhere. Yeah. So now people are traveling around the world from nowhere to nowhere else. And it's, um, well, that, that was one of the wonderful bits in the book, I think, when he's, he's arrived in Paris. Mm. And he sets out and he doesn't really know where he's going. And, yeah. and the whole thing of who's going to show him where to go, he goes with this girl who shows him, takes him along the way, and then something else happens. And you've got that whole kind of being lost in the city, way, way generations ahead of any situationists and psychogeographers mm. people. And it's doing the same thing. It's a way of learning a city by being creatively lost. Yeah, wandering around. There's a nice bit. I mean, there's a, there's a book I had to review for The Guardian recently um, about a kind of ancient old hippie character who's living in the woods in Wales. And the author of this book is coming to an event at the LRB shop, which he thinks he knows very well. And he gets out in, in Hoburn. He's pretty close. And he sort of stares at his screen and he gets completely and absolutely lost. And so, at last, I understand psychogeography. And he bumps into to a guy called John Rogers, who's a very good friend of mine, on the street. And, and John, he knows because they, they kind of share tweets. And so John is this meeting in this Sternian way, leads him to the shop, and they come and enjoy this event in the LRB. So there should be a catchment area around the LRB. It's got a strange, interestingly lost people who look vaguely familiar. Uh, a kind of Brownian motion, people Facebook, randomly coming in. And they'll, they 
do or do not decide to bring you to the shop and to the event. <laughs> <laughs> well, there are a couple of empty chairs at the back that's probably, they're sort of wandering around. Is, is a companion important to either of you in terms of travelling? Is it, does it, is it an ingredient that you welcome or is it yeah. something you don't Well, I, I welcome it in, in terms of, if I'm travelling in the sense of writing about it, you really need the companion in the way that as provided in these books, because you need them for the for the story. Mm. It's just you, you and your thoughts. You're some sort of awful Rousseauian um, egotist. If you've got somebody to be funny about or to be funny about you, then that makes it richer. Mm. And secondly, then there's that thing of walking, and it it spreads the view because the person beside you is looking. Then you, you've got a wider panorama, and after you've walked for maybe two hours then the stories start to come that are nothing to do with the journey you're on. And this, again, is part of this. They'll tell you how Uncle Toby did so-and-so, and you get a bit of the story, and then you pick up a walk another day, and you get all of the stories. I love that, you know, the idea that a walk is only an excuse to get into a series of confessions and narratives that you get to know your companion much better through the process. And certainly there is nothing more essential than a companion when traveling so you can laugh at the things you see as Ian just said. Uh, yeah. You look when, crazy when you're doing it on your own. Yeah, <laughs> in, indeed, indeed. And I have to say in the, the kind of anonymous corporatist travel from nowhere to nowhere that I was just describing, um, I, I have had to do it quite a lot uh, and I just like to sort of sink into the background so I can just look at people and how they respond to this awful experience. Uh, so that's my sort of evil satirical eye looking at things. Uh, but there was, there was a... Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. We stayed in a hotel in northern Italy about ten years ago, uh, and it was filled with ancient Italians. It's just a beautiful How memory. shocking. In yeah. Italy. I know. But, well, they weren't, they weren't ancient Americans. They were ancient Italians, which was yeah. like, and, and there was this very old man who every night would come into the restaurant wearing from top to toe, a, a different pastel shaded three-piece suit. Wasn't it Michael Portillo? No, no, no. <laughs> he was far too good looking for Michael Portillo. But he was, had a mane of silver hair, and he'd come in with this aged Italian woman on his show, and he'd just go... <laughs> I like, and it was just beautiful. Mm. It was wonderful. And Anna and I would look at this, and we just sort of do you, stuff off. Do you sort of stitch and collect characters? I, I, I tend not to carry a sketchbook around because I, I've got, on I've your got, travels. Do you yeah. do you to collect stuff that you can use? Um, I sometimes I, I, rem I have a pretty good memory, so I, I have a sort of photographic memory for certain things, so I can um, I can usually remember things like that. But uh, it's. It's that sort of happenstance, just stumbling mm. across something as bizarre as that and enjoyably bizarre as that, rather than filing past the Mona Lisa, which yeah. is always... We, um, I was very pleased when we went to the... the uh, and we were within, within, you know, two hours' drive of the Taj Mahal. We just went out of our way not to go and see it. <laughs> <laughs> because what's the point? I mean, you know, you can see a photograph of it. 
And do you bring walking into these? Into these? Yeah. Does that become part of your um, process? Well, at all? I like my my, in fa London? my father was a great traveller. He was a scientist who'd be uh, who'd um, go off to all these scientific symposia around the world, and he was always a great one for if you arrive in a new city, you walk across it. Mm. When you're ten and it's August <laughs> and it's Rome. Was a bit of a burden, to be honest. But uh, but he was a great one for walking across cities, and I uh, and that's how you found because that's how I discovered London. Uh, he would go into his institute in Gray's Inn Road uh, when he was a single parent um, after my mother died when I was ten, and he was looking after us. And in the holidays, what the hell was he going to do with me? So he drove me up to London and said, "Be back here by half past five. and off I would go, and I would wander around London, and you sort of leave a kind of behind you so you find your way back and it was fantastic and I just have memories of Soho in the 70s which um, uh, like Soho should be you mm. know, screaming junkies in public toilets and things like that <laughs> very beautiful memory that. what about when you came to do um, the wasteland which is such a kind of haunted London imagining a, kind of a traumatic moment you know just just after the first world war yeah. and it's like a a dream city. Was that when you when you came to draw that? Were you were you infected by your own vision uh, of London? Um, to a certain extent, that that was my my first graphic novel, and uh, unlike the ones subsequently, uh, it was specifically to take the piss. It was because I hate the wasteland. I think it's a terrible, <laughs> terrible poem which cast a deadening shadow over British poetry for 50 years. And so I was specifically taking the piss. And the way these things turn out, it's been a set text in American universities for 30 years. Because um, obviously you, know. you love Lawrence I lo Yeah, I love, I love Stern. And you said somewhere that this is one of the few books you read in university that you actually enjoyed reading. Yeah, yeah. Why? Because it was a laugh. <laughs> But it's good. And also, it I, read, I, read, I read very, very few books. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, because it's not a, it's not a, here's a laugh, but it's not a, at that stage in your life. It's not an obvious, because it, you know, there are, there are quite abstruse diversions in it, quite strange I mean, as, as, detours. Well, I think the thing about, the thing about uh, well, not this book, because I only read this book last year, but it's a Tristram Shandy. I, I got straight away what it was, which was it was a gag from beginning to end, because it was taking the piss out of the novel. I was reading English literature mm -hmm. at Cambridge University, uh, where Arnold Kettles, the development of the novel, F.R. Leavis's shade was still wafting around the place, this idea that it's a great kind of Whig progress, and you have, oh, here's a kind of proto-novel, and here's a kind of neo-novel, and all this kind of nonsense. And there's this Yorkshire vicar at the beginning of this great onward march of the novel, saying, this is a load of fucking bollocks. How the hell are you expected to pour something as magnificently diverse as reality into something as fragile mm. as a novel? And that's, what, uh, you know, and, and that's what's so great about modernism. You know, you look at uh, Ulysses, which is a difficult book to read. Dr. Johnson said, uh, Tristram Shandy, did, you know, nothing odd will do for long. Tristram Shandy did not last. That's because it is reflecting reality, and reality is far weirder than most of these people can cope with. So when it's actually presented there on the page, <laughs> oh God, I can't cope with that. I want it dressed yeah. up with, I want it dressed up like Pamela, which has got very little to do with reality. Not that I agree with any of that. Okay, that's fair enough. <laughs> um, I think it, as you get into it, you, you discover that he he is uh, he's not just taking the piss. He's completely no, no, no. 
saturated in all kinds of literature that he's engaging with in a ludic way. He's got his, he loves Don Quixote. Yeah. It's there all the time. There are lots of other stuff that he's, he's being very funny about, but he, he actually, it's very serious. It's part of, it's like a demented library all around him that he's playing off. Oh yeah, no, no. He's 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 both the bloke telling. So he's, a, telling, he's telling, way telling ahead the, of the game. He's, yeah, yeah. He's, he's ahead of the money. You know, he is he is both the guy telling the incredibly long, convoluted story in the, in the mm. pub, and the librarian of this huge library in his mind, it's going to a different st- stack of books. And um, you know, the well, what what I always think of um, think of the footnotes in Tristram Shandy. I just think of De Selby in. Well, I was going to say exactly. I was, I was going to say exactly that. Reading uh, the Dolky Archive, yeah. Flann O'Brien is yeah. like a p- very pared-down version, because by the stage that uh, Flann O'Brien wrote that, if you've seen ever seen, there's a wonderful arena film. I've never seen anyone deeper and stranger in drink than the opening shots of that. It's like his his head is like a sponge full of all kinds of horrible essences that are shaking about. I mean, it's wonderful to draw. And he's still, his classical education, yeah. <laughs> erudition, yeah. is pouring out of him in this horrible situation where nobody wants what he's writing. Mm-hmm. And he produces this book that has all of those elements that you're talking about, which is tragic as well as being funny. And it yeah. allows him to, to deal with the, the, the devil that's out there ahead of him all the time, James Joyce, and shoving him into being a, a barman in the scaries. Yeah. So... <laughs> That is, I, as soon as I, I was looking at it this morning, I thought, this is, this is it. You know, this mm. is, he's, he's very much of that tradition. And yet, here's a man. Well, see, Flan, Flan O'Brien had. Like, yeah, had he's having done. to work in the, in the paper and, ch- yeah. and produce yeah. stuff on a weekly basis. And of course, Flan O'Brien has, is, is toiling under the shadow of Joyce, and Lawrence yeah. Stern just had the shadow of Samuel Richardson. He, well, he takes he takes the piss out of Smollett quite yeah. quite nicely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He sort of whacks him aside as a as a as a real uh, would be travel writer of the time. You know, he's gone. He's, di- he's yeah. dismissed. Yeah. Um, and now there's this this whole fashion and fad for this kind of travel writing, which is very much holier than thou. A lot of it, isn't it? It's kind of a slightly sanctimonious no- notion that you're. You've got to be pretty well on your last legs, and you take off for a, a journey that that somehow sort of absorbs wild nature into into recovery and all all of those things. And this this is the absolute antithesis of that. This book, Sentimental yeah. Journey, is a journey that's just joy and relish and humour. And even though it is is he could he could equally have gone gone on about how sick and ill he was and how desperate and he's going to it's, see this and he doesn't do any of that. This, this is not a bucket list book. No. <laughs> <laughs> Although in fact it was. <laughs> it's, yeah, but it's, um, and it was successful. Yeah. I, you know, even though it's, it's so slender really, it's just a, it launches and it sort of, it's there in Paris and he's, he's, um, he's clearly based on his own celebrity when he, he's, he's a kind of lionized in, in Paris, I believe, after the success of Tristram Shandy. He's a kind of, everybody wants him to dinner. And, and he, yep. this obscure... And, and in, fact, in fact, the reason why Johnson bad-mouthed him was because he showed Johnson a dirty picture when they were having dinner. <laughs> <laughs> Is that right? I think that's right. You, over, yeah. you, over, you overstepped some mark. Yeah, you overstepped some mark. And, and yeah. Johnson, therefore, sort of thinks he's, he's, he's horrified by this. Uh, and... It says something for the fate, and of course, and he's dead. I mean, that's yeah. the other thing yeah. because he's he's died already, hasn't yeah. he? Before yeah. this, yeah. in fiction, anyway, yeah. he's uh, gone. Oh yeah, yeah. Yorick, we've is, had dead. The, yes. Yorick yes. is gone. Yorick he's is the, dead. He's the dead 
you're so a, you're it's, a, it's, it's a dying man writing about a dead man. Yeah. Um, and but you know, thinking about the 18th century uh, and how people knew what people looked like. Uh, Hogarth would literally do thumbnails, thumbnail sketches of people on his thumbnail like that to catch them, and then he reduced these kind of uh, almost sort of voodoo images of the people he wanted to do down, the sympathetic magic, so there'd be Wilkes and there'd be Simon Lord Lovett, the Jacobite general uh, who he pro Hogarth produced in this print, uh, which sold thousands of copies because people were getting a pleasure out of seeing this evil old man counting off the clans. And Simon Lord Lovett, memorably, when he was beheaded for trees at the Tower Hill, was observed to laugh as the axe fell on his neck because one of the stands collapsed, killing several of the spectators. <laughs> <laughs> which is a wonderfully 18th century kind of thing. But, um, but, but it's, it's, it's that idea of, of faces that Patrick said earlier on, two weeks after this book comes out, Stern is dead, buried, and disinterred. Mm. And he ends up on a mortician slab in an anatomy class in Cambridge until somebody recognizes him. Mm. And this is, of course, before photography, before anybody knew what people looked like. And he said, you know, I wrote to become famous. He was, he was famous. <laughs> he he was. was so famous they recognized him, pale and on the slab about to be sliced up. <laughs> wonderful, wonderful. There's a piece in um, Tristram Shandy where he, he talks about Hogarth and he almost describes what you do. He, he takes it on to how you would draw Dr. Slop. Mm. There's a, there's a, this, this Dr. Slop is a kind of small, strange, kind of yeah. round, and he, he, he describes it as if he's drawing him. He just does him in yeah. what outlines you'd get, and then he sticks him on this ridiculous small horse, and he's up to his neck in kind of mud and shit, yeah. Yeah. and the description is absolutely beautiful. And you just see it as, as a Martin Rose. And there it and, is. And, and, then, and then... And it's just from a little this paragraph yeah. about Hogarth. And then he allows you to uh, draw the widow Wadman yourself and leaves a blank page for you to do it in, which yes. is one of the reasons so, such a wonderful... So actually career. that eye that yeah. you yeah. have demonstrated here is, is part of his... It's, it's of part of practice. his shtick, but also... I think he, he did draw a bit, didn't he? Yeah, but also uh, Tristram Shandy is just a fantastically graphic novel yeah. before the graphic novel was ever thought yeah. of because it is filled with typographic images. And uh, in, in my version of it, I, I actually have uh, Tristram and his uh, interlocutors going when you have this wonderful graph of how the, the plot is going and it sort of goes off in these digressions like that in each book and then actually galloping on a pantomime horse through this maze of trying to get to catch up with the plot which they've lost track of 20 pages earlier on and um, when it was first suggested to me in a pub in Dublin in fact that I should do Tristram Shandy and I uh, got over the idea uh, that uh, the man from the Liverpool Press suggesting this was insane. And I suddenly realized, yes, yes, because this is incredibly graphic. And it's a progress. You can, it's perfect for a, a comic strip because it is a progress which then digresses and it falls out of the borders of the cartoon strip and then it sort of climbs back in again and things like that. Um, as I said, it was, a, it was a pleasure spending two and a half years playing around with this. Um, this is this is different. I mean, this yeah. is this is a kind of journey, but yeah. it's not really a journey. And it, yeah. and the, the you can you can illustrate these moments, but it is a thing of moments. Maybe it's a, yeah, I think it's more than it wouldn't, think, wouldn't structurally is. give itself up to being a, no. a graphic novel in that way. Well, where does he go? Yeah, I mean, he doesn't go anywhere. He doesn't go anywhere. No. Goes to the glove shop. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he, he has doesn't go, He doesn't go to Brussels. He has a you could have had a nice, you know, I could have had three hundred pages of yeah. him not going to Brussels. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> going to be quite and not fun. going to Italy. Yeah, really, not, not ne never getting to Italy, but, uh, but the gloves. And his own his own wife and children were, were kind of abandoned yep. in France at one yep. point. So they're kind of down off screen. And so there's, there's the beloved Eliza who's yeah. left from Deal to go off to India and all this kind of thing. So, so, it's, a, so it's, a kind of, it's a nice moment in the, in the idea of, well, I mean, this is Europe when, when wars are going on and the pre-revolutionary France and the, this kind of nutty parson is able to move around quite, he just doesn't have a passport, doesn't have any papers to start with. And that's, that's another nice aspect of how he has to acquire and also possible. proving who he is by getting the complete works of Shakespeare. Yeah. <laughs> because he is Which allows him to do the Yorick <laughs> jokes. Yes, I know. Which so is he, he kind of sets things up yeah. in, a, in a comedic Actually, way. Actually, I tell the you, time. the first time I read Tristram Shandy, the thing that really hooked me was the Alas Poor Yorick gag. <laughs> because I thought he's not going to do that. He's yeah. not, you know, I was 17, <laughs> I'm reading this. He's not going to do it. He does Alas Poor Yorick. Yeah. And in the 35 years I've been a professional cartoonist, the mantra going through my head all the time is always go for the obvious joke. Mm, mm. <laughs> <laughs> always do it, because if you don't, you will regret it. <laughs> and, and Yorick is then kind of immortal. He, you know, he, he actually draws this skull into being part of yeah. his family tree. Yeah. So, so yeah. Okay. Yeah. you can push a joke, the obvious joke pushed hard enough becomes something else, very complex yeah. and interesting. On the subject of um, learned disquisition, I should just point out in my comic book version of Tristram Shandy, I do have the ghost of the King of Denmark's jester, Yorick, saying, my dog has no nose, <laughs> in medieval Danish. <laughs> Fantastic. I actually did some thorough. research. Yeah, thorough, thorough. <laughs> um, I was wondering what uh, an illustration of Ian You'd have to read it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, You've kind of already done it in a way. Yeah, I mean, uh, what does any of it look like? I mean, I, d I don't know what these things look like until, uh, uh, you know, I'm, it, basically I'm a journalist, so I, I, I work to deadlines. I mean, I did this very quickly, didn't I? I did this in about this man six was weeks. This remarkable. He was in, I think it was in America. I was. He sent me a, a drawing, saying, I've just done this drawing. What do you think of it? And I looked at it and I said, it's fantastic, it's wonderful. Half an hour later, half an hour later, another one came. He said, there must be something in the water here. <laughs> I mean, he is phenomenally fast and brilliant. So I don't, I don't sort of think, of, I'd, I'd, have to, I'd have to think about this. I'd have to uh, think about it for about 40 minutes and then I would... You'd have I'd to kind on. of hate it as much as the wasteland to get you... No, 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 no. No, you see, but it, it doesn't work like that. It's, I, I obviously uh, hate... Most of the people I draw for the day job, because that's, yeah. the, that's, yeah. the, that's the pleasure, that's the, the, what the readers want. They want the cartoonists to empower them to hate these idiots. I, I like uh, the story about, I think, T Tony Blair, who was sort of computer illiterate, was about to send you a furious letter. Uh, no, yes, no, he, was, he was about to write to The, the Guardian um, about a cartoon I did of, uh, of him throwing out policies um, like socialism and comprehensive education while he was in Shit Creek when the New Labour was going through the a dip in the polls in September of 1996, and he was trying to use the computer, and Alistair Campbell came in and said, what are you doing, boss? Yeah, I just get a complaint to the uh, Guardian about this disgraceful cartoon. <laughs> and Campbell was very good at his job and said, don't complain <laughs> about the cartoon, boss, they'll think you're a nutter. <laughs> uh, and we would have done, we would have swarmed on him like a pack of velociraptors and torn him to pieces. The politician who 
is stupid enough to complain about Most the Most of the politicians <laughs> have enough vanity that whatever you do, they want to collect it. Well, like there's no, one thing, Archer, yeah, I mean, the one thing worse than being, yeah, yeah, the one thing worse than being in a cartoon is not being in a cartoon because yeah. you're insufficiently important. But also they recognize, they, you know, the, the reason why we get away, in fact, I, when I was doing these drawings of Patrick, I was in an anonymous hotel on Long Island, again. attending, uh, again, attending the American Association of Editorial Cartoonists meeting. Uh, and I did a little presentation to my American colleagues who were sort of slack-jawed with disbelief. Uh, 300 years of British political visual satire. Uh, and uh, they'd been talking about the sec they'd been talking about the First Amendment all morning, how wonderful it was. And they said, how the hell do you get away with this stuff? And I said, well, we have no constitution, we have no First Amendment rights to free expression. Our editors would never let us do this. Well, there's your problem straight away. Yeah. Um, and uh, it's because, you know, we've had it for 300 years. And the one, well, until recently, the one unacceptable crime in British public life was admitting you had no sense of humor. Yeah. Although I think, I don't know whether you saw this, the, the Telegraph asked lots of people to say how brilliant my friend and colleague Matt of the Telegraph is. He is brilliant in many ways. And they asked Corbyn to ask to, to mention his favorite Matt cartoon. And they counterployed brilliantly by saying, Unfortunately, Jeremy doesn't think any of Matt's cartoons are funny, which, <laughs> which is a brilliant counterpoint. Not yeah. getting the gag is, yeah. is a brilliant counterpoint. But the, the Telegraph said, oh, this is, you know, this is worse than Stalin's Russia. <laughs> um, I liked what you said earlier about, um, about how you enjoy uh, drawing Theresa May as this sort of you know, uh, ghost who's gradually mm. disappearing. And I wondered if you could tell us a bit about sort of how you approached this job you know, visually. What were the sort of visual hooks that... Uh, this one, this, yeah, this, yeah, this yeah, job, yeah, yeah. this job. Well, um, again, it was it was reading it, rereading it, letting it filter, and then suddenly getting you, you get the hook, and the hook was the, the devil and the angel sitting on the shoulders. And I'd looked at a lot of previous illustrated versions, and realised that none of none of them had got close to the spirit of Stern. Uh, and in the sense, I spent two and a half years with Stern. I think I, I sort of got what he was about. And so I just threw away all the ideas I was having of doing it in a naturalistic way. And you should do it in a non-naturalistic way. And which meant that you could play around with I mean, the image I'm most pleased with is the one where he's, he's, he's talking about how he was at the opera with this uh, Contessa, I think she is. And they, they go through a bit of slapstick business where they're trying to get past each other and they sort of bang, end up banging heads. Uh, but it meant you could... Uh, be there in a minute. So, so you just have this kind of weird creature with many heads <laughs> as they just sort of bang each other's heads, uh, and um, which is which was just great fun to do because it's actually quite difficult to draw that. And I thought that's a bit of a challenge. Let's have a go at that. And um, the little drawing of the, of the of the two little good good angels and yeah. bad angels at the bottom is extraordinary. I mean, it's contorted into positions which I mean, your your mind creates these positions because it's like cartoon language that you're working yeah. with. Yeah. Because it's somebody who's turning around and completely corkscrewed. Yeah, it's, so, so well, it's, 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 uh, it's, it's Tom and Jerry. It's, you right. know, it's, it's what you do. Yeah. It's, um, and also, and that was the other thing, rather than, that there's lots of very naturalistic illustrations from a sentimental journey, and I thought, oh, sod that, sod naturalism. I'm a cartoonist, I'll do it like a cartoonist. And, uh, you know, I think, I think Stir well, when Tristram Shandy came out and we had a book launch in Rick Joukowsky's gallery just over there, and um, Kenneth Monkman, who set up the Lawrence Stern Trust, who was very old at the time, he came down for the launch 
And uh, as he was leaving, he said, Stern would have approved, which was the imprimatur, the mark of the, uh, <laughs> the mark of phew, thank God for that. Uh, and I was even more pleased when Professor Melvin New of the University of Florida, who spent his entire life researching Stern and producing the ultimate complete works of Lawrence Stern, said the, uh, my version showed insuff- insufficient reverence for the text. <laughs> Suggesting somebody had given him a bum steer in the careers office. You know, go and do stir. That will keep you quiet. <laughs> you said that you've got a great admiration for Hogarth, mm. and he did a great variety of things from little little labels to oil paintings and so on. Do do you and and uh, was also outraged? about between the difference between caricature and character character i think but do you have a range of things do you do sort of watercolor landscapes in, to, uh, well uh, people uh, ask me how i relax i relax yeah. by not drawing you write novels i write novels yeah I, I sort of write to relax I see. So, yeah. but, but all your all your work is in in the graphic satire uh, well, it's, this kind of stuff is illustration. Um, yeah. so I've, I've just done um, a comic book version of the Communist Manifesto, which is coming out in May. Uh, why not? <laughs> yeah. Somebody's got to do it. Mostly, this is, this is my job, so I, I draw when people say there's money at the end of the line, uh, which I think is, is exactly what Hogarth would have done. I mean, precisely what Hogarth would have done. Um, gee, Hogarth, there is, a, there is a wonderful kind of apostolic, satirical apostolic succession from the young Hogarth producing a, a, to- a completely non-canonical scene from Gulliver's Travels, just coattailing onto Gulliver's Travels, um, of Gulliver receiving an enema, which is one of the only things that doesn't happen in Gulliver's Travels. Uh, and s- ten years later, in um, this lengthy attack on the Irish Parliament for failing to increase church tithes, Swift suddenly breaks the fourth wall at one point and directly addresses Hogarth. This is how I want the humorous Hogarth you I hear of noble Rogart. You know, were but just were but you and I acquainted, every monster should be painted, and on it goes. And it's just a wonderful love letter to my profession. And I always thought, what a terrible shame was they never collaborated because then they would have been the, the Hunter S. Thompson and Ralph Steadman of the Enlightenment. It would have been brilliant. But then, of course, Hogarth does the frontispiece for volumes one and two of Tristram Shandy. So it, it is a kind of wonderful satirical apostolic succession. <laughs> Thank you both very much indeed for coming along tonight and championing this book. And it's been Thank you for doing it. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening. Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes. 15,178 under MSRP for an average of 15,178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MS